This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for January 5th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. And today we're also joined by Christian Drosten, a virologist at the Charité Hospital in Berlin. Christian has a long history of studying beta coronaviruses, and in fact, was one of the first to isolate the SARS coronavirus that caused the multi-country outbreak of lethal disease in 2003. He's also been deeply involved in the COVID-19 outbreak as a scientist, as a policymaker, as a communicator. He's an important advisor to the German and European Union governments. And in fact, he's also our competition. He hosts a very well-received podcast, which we highly recommend to those who speak German. Christian, today we'd like to talk to you about how science gets translated into policy. But before we do that, let's talk about a study that we published today. Vaccines can have a few different benefits. They're potentially able to prevent infection, reduce progression to serious illness and death, and stop onward transmission of the virus. The vast majority of what we've published has focused on the first two benefits. Clearly, if a vaccine prevents infection, then there can't be any further transmission. But what if a vaccinated individual is infected? Do they have a reduced chance of passing that virus on? That's a more difficult question to answer than the questions about infection and disease. It requires recruiting a group of exposed individuals. But since we have no way of measuring exposure directly, we have to rely on proxies of exposure. We have seen some studies in these areas, and they do suggest that there's some reduction in transmission. Of course, though, this could change as levels of immunity are not fixed, and there are antigenic changes to the viruses as they vary. That was the question being asked in the study that we published today. How well does vaccination prevent transmission of two of the viral variants, alpha and delta? So how did the investigators go about answering the question? This was a retrospective study in which the authors identified index cases in the UK using the National Health Services records, and then went to contact tracing records to find close contacts. These were defined as household members, those who'd spent significant time very close to the index patient, sexual contacts, or those who traveled in the same vehicle or plane and who had a PCR test for infection, either for symptoms or for asymptomatic screening beginning at the beginning of January and ending in July. They then classified each virus as either alpha or delta based on the results of PCR. To calculate the risk of transmission, they constructed a model that took into account the vaccination status of both the index patient and the contact, the type of contact, and social and other demographic features of the contacts. And what did they find? There were two vaccines being used in the UK, BNT162B2, the Pfizer vaccine, and Chadox-1, the AstraZeneca vaccine. Both decreased the risk of transmission of the alpha variant by about two-thirds for the Pfizer vaccine and about a half for the AstraZeneca vaccine. However, both were somewhat less able to block transmission of the Delta variant. Part, but not all of this, could be explained by the fact that protection against transmission decreased over time a finding that seems consistent with the known waning of immunity over time. I think that the conclusion is that vaccination does provide a benefit in decreasing transmission from a vaccinated individual to others. It's not an enormous benefit, but it is a benefit. It does seem to correlate with the degree of immunity, and it's likely that with booster doses of vaccines, we might see more protection against onward transmission. So Eric, I think this is such an important distinction. Preventing COVID illness and disease versus preventing transmission. They're both part of the public health response. 
How to measure and ascertain the prevention of transmission is very complicated, and these are difficult studies to do. And our colleagues in the UK have done a nice job of helping frame this question and providing some insight into the ability of vaccines and the associated immunity to prevent transmission of two different circulating variants. However, it's always difficult in these studies to understand the directionality of transmission. Who in the household is truly infected first versus detected first? And then how to measure key factors. You alluded to the time from vaccination, which is very important, but the issue of which vaccines were received, who's an early adopter versus a later adopter in terms of those who received vaccination, and then which variants are circulating is a time-dependent factor, which is then linked to the time from immunization and may influence the risk of acquisition or transmission. Having said all of this, this investigation still provides important insight that vaccination can also have an effect on transmission and not just illness. I like this study, and there are aspects that are maybe not so much in the foreground, but that are probably quite interesting now for also looking at Omicron. For instance, if we look at the difference in viral load, specifically in the asymptomatic patients, and we compare alpha versus delta, what we see is that really the viral loads in alpha are lower and are more influenced by the vaccine. And I really asked myself how this would look for Omicron, right? So there is more immune escape, but I mean, clearly there is a lot of transmission from asymptomatic individuals. Now with Omicron coming in as a virus that causes more breakthrough infections, more asymptomatic infections, the viral load profile there will be really interesting to see. And I think, Christian, you sort of raised the important point of compartment, the nasal or mucosal compartment where acquisition occurs and a substantial amount of replication and risk of transmission versus the systemic compartment, which often is associated with the inflammation, end organ injury, and more severe illness. And what we may be seeing in part with vaccination is better protection against systemic illness across variants, but may have a weaker impact on localized or compartmental infection or replication, such as in the nares. therefore a disconnect between illness prevention versus transmission. And it may well be variant dependent in terms of the immunity elicited and present in the mucosa when one is exposed to or infected with a new variant that has some level of escape from the background immunity. And I think it's worth making the point that we've discussed before, which is that vaccines which induce strong mucosal immunity are generally delivered to the mucosa. And for the most part, those are live viral vaccines where there's a sufficient amount of replication in the mucosa to produce an antigenic load, which will induce immunity. That's not true for any of our vaccines right now. We don't have a vaccine like that. So for now, at least, I think we're going to induce systemic responses, which may not work so well in blocking transmission. Yeah, well, for the immediate future, we'll also induce a lot of natural immunity based on the Omicron variant, unfortunately. And that raises an interesting question as to whether or not natural immunity is really going to do a better job of preventing transmission than vaccination. It could very well be specifically because of the mucosal replication. 
yeah, I guess this is what we're seeing for many respiratory diseases. The, the specific problem, of, obviously, with Omicron is that we have more and more indications towards this virus establishing itself as a new serotype, right? So this is really antigenetically different from the previous viruses. And I doubt that actually the previous viruses will completely disappear. So we may have to deal with two different serotypes in, in the future, including maybe two variants of vaccines. I don't want to go out on too much of a tangent here, but you know what you're saying, Christian, raises the question of what do we define as a serotype? When do we say that this virus really is something brand new and not just a small variant of what we've seen before? And I guess, do you think of Omicron as really being a serotype yet? Well, no, it's too early to define that. But what's quite striking is if, if you look at mono-infections in naive persons with Omicron, there is little reactivity towards the other ones, right? Uh, little neutralizing antibodies. I mean, these data are just somehow in the making, but it is a striking observation. But Christian, I mean, there's the immunity in terms of are there divergent enough sequences or serotypes, as you suggest, that can cause infection one after the other. So it's not cross-protective immunity. But I also find it fascinating to understand how these viruses live in their ecologic niches. And as we saw with pandemic H1N1 13, 14 years ago, it outcompeted seasonal H1N1. And we see that actually quite routinely that when a new variant of influenza A emerges, it outcompetes the other serotypes in its space. And I wonder if with SARS-CoV-2, if there will be that type of competition as well for its replication niches, and one variant may outcompete the other, as we've witnessed in the short term with Omicron outcompeting Delta. Now, whether Delta is gone or Delta is at such a low level because Omicron is so dominant, we won't know for a little while. But I wonder if the SARS-CoV-2 variants will outcompete prior variants to extinction. Yeah, well, that depends a lot on what their intrinsic transmission fitness is, right? So if you really consider Omicron as superior intrinsically, then it may cancel out Delta entirely. But if this is all just immune escape for Omicron, then this advantage will be lost soon. And then Delta may come back. If it transmits at the same efficiency level, it can come back to those who are waning immunity against Delta. And there, of course, it becomes important whether these two different, let's say, specificities are really sufficiently separated from each other. This we don't know. We have to wait for that. Christian, I want to ask you generally about how your scientific background informs the advice that you give governments and other institutions. But first, can you tell us what the situation looks like in Germany at the moment? Well, in Germany, we are in a period of low incidence currently after we had issues in several regions of the country with Delta. So towards the end of autumn, several states in Germany, we call them Bundesländer, so to use a German word, <laughs> um, these provinces, some of them really had to impose new control measures that were, well, actually they were lockdown measures. And some of this was general measures in, in the whole country. And for this reason, we are now in a period where we are still benefiting from decreased incidence, from lower hospitalization rates, from decreasing death rates. But at the same time, we are now seeing the Omicron variant coming in. And we are at about 50% share of Omicron detections now. And 
this is going to increase over January. We um, see a, a doubling rate of about four days, which is slower than in the UK. But it makes sense considering the fact that we still have a lot of control measures in place because of Delta and because of the fact that considerable share in the German population, including the older people, are unvaccinated. So we have to have control measures in place, and that seems to slow down the Omicron expansion a bit. Are you seeing the same sorts of things reflected in the rest of Europe, Christian? Germany certainly has different control measures than many of its neighbors. Yeah, exactly. So there are differences. I mean, if you consider, for instance, the UK, you really have a rapid increase of incidents in some regions there. The incidence is already coming down again, and there may be limiting effects, network effects that cause these immediate decreases. But we don't know what will happen, let's say, when school starts again, beginning of January now. And um, well, Germany is actually one of the few countries in Europe that doesn't see such an increase. So in other countries, for instance, Italy, we are now seeing new increases of Omicron. And this obviously will be a common impression in Europe very soon. So one of the issues for many basic scientists is that standards of proof demanded in science are very high, sometimes maddeningly so. Yet in a time of crisis, policymakers don't have the luxury of waiting for absolute proof. And they often have to deal with incomplete information. A recent example of that is the very rapid concerns about the Omicron variant that you've been talking about. We saw pieces of data far earlier than we could critically evaluate them, but governments had to act. So how do you reconcile what it is you want to know with what the reality looks like on the ground? Yeah, this is a difficult issue, actually, because it's not only basic scientists, it's scientists in general who would like to have multiple layers of evidence before they actually come to a conclusion. But now politicians, other decision makers, they ask for advice quick. So this whole idea of evidence-based decision-making doesn't work out anymore to this extent, right? So if you consider vaccine indication recommendations, how do you reach such recommendations without many, many people vaccinated? So without a vaccination program already in place, for which in turn you need a recommendation, right? So this has caused issues, as we all remember, for instance, when it came to, um, so the side effects of vaccines are not very frequent. And other issues, for instance, the big question of viral load and virus shedding. So what does a viral load tell us? Uh, is the virus transmitted in schools? All of these things where there was no really final scientific evidence, and we are still struggling to obtain this evidence while the decisions for this have already been made. And we can now, in retrospect, evaluate the consequences because several countries have made different decisions based on the same type of data. But Christian, I mean, I think this has additional layers in that the speed with which we communicate an observation anywhere in the world today can be accessible to anyone today. And a lot of our listeners, our practitioners, our patients are hearing about a new piece of information that they may think is relevant to their care or their protection. And tomorrow, a new piece of information emerges that may change the thinking. And this now undermines trust in knowledge and information because it looks like we're flip-flopping on a very frequent basis. So how should we deal with this to help build trust and confidence in how we communicate given the limits of the information we have available in real time, 
yet is available to everybody and everybody wants to understand it? Well, within certain limits, it is possible to communicate this process of scientific, let's say, endeavor or, or quest, where you can really say, well, two weeks earlier, I thought things were different, but now there is new information coming in and let me explain what this means. So this is possible if you have a certain audience, maybe of people who are very interested, who are, well, maybe decision makers who really want to understand the background, but this really has limits. And at a certain point, you have to switch to something like strategic communication. You have to know what your central message should be, and you have to focus and emphasize this message. And well, I can't say I have any solution for this complex problem. I can only say this is the experience. At some point, you can't explain all the backgrounds anymore. And then, of course, it helps to only speak about those things that you know something about, where you are not in doubt yourself, because it's always better to be on a high level and then reduce the information. So you are very certain also as a person, people perceive this, that you are, as a communicator, you are actually on very solid ground. This also helps a lot. And then, well, explain, explain, explain. Christian, as you're saying, one of the results of the COVID epidemic has been this sort of democratization of science where everyone has access to everything at the same time. And one of the things that that's produced is sort of a fragmentation among the groups that are listening to it. And you're referring to some of that. And the same data can be interpreted in multiple ways by different people. And yet a policymaker has to make a policy for all of those groups, which can be really challenging. Just to push you on the communications piece of it, who do you think listens to your podcast? Here's a podcast that's really dedicated towards scientifically literate people, maybe not scientists, but people who are interested in science. Who listens and how influential is something like a very well-informed voice in society? Well, this podcast, actually, the, the one that I'm doing, this started out as a, let's say, um, as a solution that I found to not have to provide the same information to all sorts of media sources again and again. So I decided to make this podcast to one public media source and they could all draw from it. It started like a general virology lecture series without any preparation and then went through a period of looking at the hottest preprints and explaining the caveats and so on long before they were published. I made breaks over summer because it was clear nobody would be interested in any coronavirus information while, uh, <laughs> while they are enjoying their summer vacations. And it's now, well, the frequency has been lowered because I have the feeling that actually this essential function of scientific information, science communication to the, let's say, the more interested and information-seeking parts of the population this job, in fact, has been done. And in autumn, at some point, I was like, um, science has delivered. So let's stop this, right? We have a vaccine, and now it's up to politicians to deal with the rest of the problem. And I was really convinced that this is the right stopping point. Then Omicron came in. Now there is a lot of new demand for information. And what I think the audience is, these are people who read newspapers, who are interested in scientific content, but who are lay people. And this also includes a lot of lay background decision makers. So I'm convinced that many people in government departments listen to this type of 
condensed but thorough information. So some of these podcast episodes, they are like one and a half hours. I think the longest is two and a half. So it's not only fun to listen to this. You need time and you need to be interested. Christian, you talked about the differences between countries in Europe. And if you look at that as an experiment in how to control COVID-19, what do you think we've learned? Mm, well, I think one thing that really can be learned is that the countries that vaccinated successfully and older parts of their population, they fare well in general. In terms of those other little questions like, should we keep schools open or should we close them? So there have been many attempts to answer this question by comparing between European countries. There is no simple answer because these countries are quite different. So if you consider, let's say, the smaller countries in Central Europe that surround Germany, right? Um, Denmark, Belgium, uh, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Austria, they have similar population sizes, but the populations are very different. Mobility is very different. If you consider, for instance, like the Netherlands, people move around the whole country in a commuter mode, while in Switzerland, well, there are some mountains around, right? So, so even this simple difference may really influence how diseases are transmitted. Then the share of the population that worked in the producing sector versus, let's say, education and other things, these countries are differently structured. And that really makes it difficult to regard them as, let's say, experimental replicas that you just observe. But yeah, so the vaccination thing is certainly an important experience where we can say, irrespective of how countries made their decisions in the first and second wave, from that point on, the vaccination strategy was really decision-making and yeah, was really pivotal for the further fate of the epidemic in that country. I guess I'd probably say the same thing about the U.S. states, which have semi-independent policies. It's very difficult to draw lessons from them, in part because of cultural differences. The substantial difference is the difference in vaccination rates. And I think that many people have looked at particularly Omicron, Delta before it, and then particularly in Omicron and said, hey, vaccines don't really make that much of a difference because lots of people are being infected in every state, regardless of vaccination status. But the truth is death rates have varied tremendously from state to state. And that's really largely dictated by their vaccination rates. But as far as social measures, very difficult to, I think, draw many lessons, as you're saying. But Eric, I mean, along those lines, there's also the population density with the urban versus rural environment, you know, layered on top of other social forces in different states. And then the unfortunate exacerbation of differential access and how that has also played into the severity of illness in different communities and access to vaccines and other treatments. And I don't know how much that has played out across Europe as well, Christian. Well, I should point out, you know, some huge difference between us and most European countries is national health service and universal access to care, which we don't have. And that really tends to exacerbate some of those divisions that you're talking about, Lindsay. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, we see um, the same differentiation of things when we compare, for instance, communities with a migration background, right? So this is just uh, an obvious thing also in Europe. So looking at access, one of the biggest failures during the pandemic has been our inability to provide vaccines to many countries around the world. 
Christian, from your vantage point in Europe, do you see that situation improving? And what do you think should be done? Well, I guess there is political will on an international level to improve on that. I think WHO has sent a message just today in this regard. But um, yeah, so in general, I'm afraid the acquisition of natural immunity will just be faster in large parts of the global south, right? It's just a fact. We won't change this by any political decision making regarding vaccine provisions this year. And it has to happen this year. Otherwise, it's going to be too late. Maybe it has to happen in the next few months. So how can this be done? What I think this can be good for is as a lesson. So we need better structures for disease surveillance in the first place. And while there are programs to improve sequencing capabilities across Africa, this doesn't solve the deals of diagnostic laboratories, right? This is the more important thing. So we need to be able to diagnose the common infectious diseases on a smaller scale of resolution there in African countries before we really scale up sequencing capacities. And then of course, yes, production of vaccines on site, this is something that should be promoted and considered for some countries where this is possible already. So I believe there is a long-term lesson from this dilemma, but for the present situation, I don't see any real solution except the positive political effect that this will have on, on the long-term. So Christian, I worry that the speed with which Omicron is transmitting, that we don't have time to deliver vaccines anywhere, given that natural or wild type infection is going to occur likely over the next weeks to month or two globally. But I am intrigued by your earlier comment that perhaps Delta and Omicron or their descendants may co-circulate which then raises the issue of continuing vaccination strategies even after Omicron has swept through communities, given the need to augment immunity against these other variants. And that we as a global community need to keep this in mind, that even after infection has swept through with Omicron, for example, there may still be substantial value in augmenting uh, global community immunity through vaccination. Yeah, I completely agree. Currently, it's a little bit more than a virologist's informed gut feeling. There are some snips of evidence here and there, for instance, the serological data that point at the possibility of a new serotype forming, but also the observation that probably a large share of the fitness advantage that Omicron has is actually because of immune escape. Actually, I do not really believe in a big intrinsic fitness advantage. So if you subtract the immunity, you will have two variants co-circulating. Although, Christian, the replication and doubling time of Omicron seems substantially faster than Delta. When we look at the curves of rapid community infection, it is, it's not a, a slope, it's a straight line north. And so there does appear to be some fitness advantage if replication speed can be considered as a fitness advantage in addition to the ability to escape immunity. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with this, but maybe here there is an interesting notion from this European perspective comparing countries. So if we look at this steep increase in the UK and in Denmark, for which we have the best data and the highest, let's say, testing effort, 
when we compare this with Germany, there really is a difference. So it really seems that measures in place make a big difference here. And um, well, I'm not really sure whether or not most of what we are seeing is in fact immune escape. There is also a very interesting household transmission study from Denmark now pointing into this direction. This is an extremely interesting study that I've recently read. And well, the impression there really is this is mainly immune escape. Let's end on a positive note for the new year. What do you see as the hopeful signs out there? Uh, well, I mean, the hopeful sign, let's say, with all the virus variants coming up, and who knows what comes after Omicron, where there will be recombinants between Delta and Omicron and so on. All of this is possible and actually quite conceivable. One thing that really goes into one direction is population immunity. In spite of maybe serotype differentiation, what we see is in the cellular immunity data, protection holds up. And the more we vaccinate, and let's say in some countries, the more people get infected, where this is affordable uh, based on the, the age profile, the more there will be population immunity. So the way towards an endemic situation, I think, is a clear way for countries across the globe. Thank you very much, Christian, for joining us today. And as always, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Lindsay.